You're listening to Working Classics. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season, we're revisiting some of my favorite episodes uh, from my time hosting the show. For this episode, we're looking back at my conversation with Dr. Diane Orvath Cosper, who talks about the working life of an abortion provider. Uh, we recorded this episode shortly after uh, the 2016 presidential election, at a moment when it felt urgent to think about how people were providing services that felt like they were threatened in that moment. And I learned so much from this conversation with Dr. Horvath Cosper. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we're talking to people employed in fields potentially imperiled by the results of the recent U.S. presidential election. These are the stories of passionate people doing difficult, hugely important jobs, jobs that may get a lot harder and a lot more important in the years ahead. For our first episode, we spoke with Diane Horvath Cosper, an OBGYN and family planning specialist based in Baltimore, Maryland. Deeply committed to reproductive rights, she talked to us about why she chose to train as an abortion provider and what it's like compassionately counseling women as they prepare for abortions. She also talked about her actual clinical work, as well as the day-to-day advocacy that she engages in to support it. That advocacy has been informed by her own experiences at the clinic and elsewhere, facing down threats and other resistance from protesters and hospital administrators alike. And of course, she discussed what it's like to continue that fight in an increasingly repressive and worrisome political climate. Then, in a slight plus extra, Horvath Cosper reflects on the changing presence of abortion in mainstream culture. What is your name and what do you do? So my name is Diane Horvath Cosper, and I am an OBGYN and also a family planning specialist within OBGYN. What does that mean to be a family planning specialist? So it means that I did two additional years of training beyond my residency to learn how to do um, abortions, especially abortions later into pregnancy, and then also to um, you know help people who have really complex contraceptive needs, and mm-hmm. then also to do research and advocacy. What inspired you to go into family planning? So when I was an OBGYN practicing, you know, doing deliveries and surgeries and things like that, I I liked it a lot, but I came to the realization that, you know, there were always going to be people to do C-sections at 3 o'clock in the morning. There were always going to be people to do prenatal care visits. But unless there was more people trained to do abortions, unless there were people who were willing to train others to do them, then we weren't necessarily going to have people going forward. There's a lot of people in the field that are retiring, and there was a need that needed to be filled. So where do you work today? So I actually work for an organization called Physicians for Reproductive Health, and that's actually an advocacy organization. Um, And then I do clinical work. I try to get in three to four days a month on top of my full-time work. Mm -hmm. So is there a typical day for you within that that kind of framework then? So I think that probably it's useful to describe it in, you know, is there a typical clinical day and a typical advocacy day? And I think 
within the advocacy world, a lot of it is we're responding to things that come up. A typical day for me in the last week has been, you know, a couple of media calls. Uh, we've had a lot of concerns about women and access to contraception and what's going to happen with the Affordable Care Act. And then maybe I would review documents for medical accuracy. I'm kind of the medical expert within our organization who's on staff. Um, from a clinical perspective, a typical day for me in the clinics that I work in would be to, you know, arrive in the morning. We typically have anywhere between 20 and 30 patients. I spend some time doing procedures. I do things like place IUDs and do implants and other kinds of contraception on top of abortion procedures. When you're in the uh, clinic, how much of your time do you spend consulting with patients prior to conducting procedures? It depends on the clinic structure. So when I was in fellowship, the clinic that we worked in, the physicians would see the patient through the whole visit. So, you know, we had a lower volume of patients. So we would see people, we would do their intake, ask them, you know, about their story, let them tell us about their lives, which is really one of my favorite parts of the practice. And then we would do their ultrasound and then prep them for the procedure, do their procedure and manage their aftercare. So that all happens in one day, typically? Yes, typically one day. So the vast majority of abortions happen at a point in the pregnancy where it's a very safe, very fast one-day procedure. In the clinics that I work in right now, because there's such a high volume of patients um, and a lot of people needing care, um, Usually the physician isn't the one doing all the counseling. We have excellent, excellent, highly trained staff who see those patients for the counseling portion and the ultrasound portion. And I typically see them for their procedures. Does that make a difference in the way that you conduct the procedure if you have less contact with the patient beforehand? So the procedure doesn't change. Um, I think that one of the things that really enriches the experience for me and reminds me every day why I do this is having that contact time with a patient and and sitting down and really hearing people's stories and having people talk about their lives and their their hopes and their dreams. But I also think that there's a gift to be able to go into a room, meet somebody, and within a few minutes establish the kind of rapport that you need to do a procedure with them. Are there any particular things you do, ways that you talk, ways that you address people to build that rapport? Um, I think people like to talk about their lives and they like to talk about their families. And, you know, we know nationally uh, 60% of women who have abortions are already moms. And I ask people about their kids and their families. And I have a daughter and I talk about, you know, what what is your daughter into? Oh, your kid's five. What's he into these days? And um, I think it really... Uh, it surprises the patients sometimes because I think that we unfortunately have really kind of dissociated the experience of parenting and being a parent with this idea that people who are parents still have abortions. And it's still okay to do that. And a lot of times it's the abortion that allows someone to go back to their lives and be a parent to the kids that they already have. And I think that people are sometimes surprised when I ask them about their families. It's as if you know, they're shocked that you would recognize that they're already parents. Do you think they feel like they have to keep that stuff out of the consultation room, out of the clinic? I, you know, I think people come in with all different expectations, but I think the one of the biggest ones that people have and, and the most unfortunate is that they don't expect to be treated like a human being. Mm. And I think that that's one of the most difficult things about this job is realizing how much stigma people bring in with them. And, you know, there's the having to walk past lines of protesters outside the clinic and all the stuff that goes along with that. But just the messages that people are getting about abortion from the media, from their families, their churches, their friends, you know, all these other places where we're hearing these stories, it's usually not positive. And I think 
um, having to fight that in addition to all of the other regulations and the, you know, restrictions and things like that, that, that make it difficult for people to access this very normal medical care, mm-hmm. um, to have to tell someone, no, you're, you're a good mom. Like you're, this doesn't mean you're a bad person. This doesn't mean you're a bad woman. You know, people ask things like, do you think God will forgive me? Mm-hmm. And that's just always heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. When someone asks a question like that, how do you respond? It's difficult because everybody has different values, right? So I usually turn it back to the patient and I say, well, what kind of a God do you believe in? Do you believe in a God who forgives? Do you believe in a God who knows you and understands your circumstances and will understand the choices that you're making? And, you know, I I can't tell anyone what to believe and and I certainly wouldn't want to put any beliefs on anyone else. But I think, you know, getting people to think about this in the frame of their life course and in the context of having all of these other obligations and expectations and you know, looking within themselves for the reason for needing an abortion. Are people's minds usually fully made up when they arrive at the clinic or by the time you're you're consulting with them? I would say the vast majority of people, by the time they come in, they've made up their minds. Um, in fact, we have, you know, national data that shows that if people delay having the procedure, it's typically not because they couldn't make up their mind. It's because they couldn't marshal the resources. They couldn't get the money. They couldn't get the transportation. Um, and typically it's, you know, by the time they call me, they've made up their minds already. That said, we do, you know, options counseling with everybody. We review all the options. Every patient knows that there's three options when you find yourself pregnant. There's parenting, there's adoption and abortion, and everyone gets information about all three. In some states, there are also pretty intense rules that govern what you have to talk to a patient about when you're consulting with them beforehand. Is that Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you had to deal with any of those kind so, of laws? When I was practicing in Minnesota, we had a 24-hour waiting period, and we were given, uh, you know, a list of things that we had to talk about with the patient 24 hours prior to the abortion procedure. Um, and these are all – some of the things were things we talk about with the patient anyway, but they always enter into discussions of informed consent. So it's not like this 24-hour consent replaces the informed consent we do about the procedure because we do that every single time anyway. And I think, you know, the script that we used in Minnesota certainly isn't nearly as bad or as biased as some of the scripts in other states where they have to say things like abortion causes breast cancer, which it does not, or they have to say things like abortion increases your risk of suicide, which it does not. Um, But it was still enough to somebody would come in for their appointment and didn't catch the phone call or, you know, missed it and thought they could still come in and we'd have to turn them away because Mm -hmm. the law requires it. And I think, you know, these laws get sold as a way to make sure women are certain about their decision. But I can tell you that by the time people make an appointment and they come in, they're certain. When you are speaking with someone, when you're consulting with someone, do you ever get the sense that they're bringing in a lot of immediate pressure from family, from friends, from their environment. And if so, how do you how do you work with them as they're processing that, if they are processing it while they're sitting across from you? Yeah, that definitely is something we see from time to time. Um, you know, there's a lot of feelings about reproduction, whether to, you know, have babies, not have babies. And people can get a lot of pressure from their family. And I've had conversations with people where, you know, the 
family member won't leave the room and we have to take the patient to the bathroom to talk to her about what she really wants. And, you know, people have asked me, well, haven't you ever done an abortion for someone who didn't want one? I said, no, we're not in the business of doing them for people who don't want them. Um, so when we feel and when we talk to patients, if we're getting a sense that this is not what they want, we don't do an abortion for them, you know, and we get them alone, we talk with them, and then we make whatever referrals we need to. And, you know, we've called domestic violence shelters, we've got, you know, social workers on staff who can come talk to patients and identify resources. I mean, not everybody's got a dire situation like that. And sometimes it's just a matter of helping empower the patient to decide what's best for her. But sometimes we have to get people into safe places. You know, mm -hmm. that's their point of contact with the system is at the clinic. Yeah. Are there other questions that people ask when they come in for a consultation? Um, I think, you know, people have a wide range of questions about the procedure. You know, will it hurt? What am I going to feel like afterwards? I would say those are the most common types of questions that we get. Um, sometimes people want to know, um, especially, you know, later in the pregnancy about, you know, the experience of, of the fetus. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that um, certainly comes up, especially when we were seeing patients who had wanted pregnancies that were, you know, ending for medical reasons, mm -hmm. for something seriously wrong with a fetus or something seriously wrong with a mother. And so that was a, you know, that's a, a different kind of frame to look at the experience. How are the conversations, how are the interactions with a patient different in the clinic if, uh, if they're coming in because of a medically necessary procedure uh, related to a planned pregnancy or failed pregnancy? So I think for those patients, you know, the, the process is different in terms of their grief. So not everybody grieves after an abortion, and that's okay. I mean, it's totally fine to move on with your life. And like I said, I don't want to ascribe feelings to anyone that they don't need to have. Um, but I think for people who are coming in with planned pregnancies where this is a loss for them, where they're losing a wanted baby, those people have a grief process, and they it's different, and they need different support. Um, and also just to acknowledge some of the things that they may want done. So we've had patients that requested to have um, a special like family item, you know, cremated with the fetus or who wanted their minister to come say a prayer. And we're happy to accommodate all of that stuff. Do you try to anticipate those sorts of questions or do you just have to wait for them to arrive and answer them as they come? You know, the best policy for me has been to let the patient guide the discussion. Mm. Obviously, I want to, you know, give them all the medical information that they need and all the information about follow-up and things like that. But I think in terms of um, ascribing feelings to the experience of having an abortion, people have totally different feelings. You know, we know from research that most women, the vast majority of women, don't feel regret that, you know, they say things like, well, I wish I wouldn't have had to be in the position to have to make that decision, or I wish I had the resources right now, but I don't, but they don't regret having had the abortion. And so that's why I don't want to give anybody any feelings that they may not have, because it may not be their experience. How do you describe the procedure itself to patients? Well, it depends on, you know, what type of procedure they're having. So I also, I do um, medical abortions or medication abortions, mm -hmm. which is uh, two medications, one that they'll take in the clinic and one that they'll use at home. Mm -hmm. um, and for those patients, it's going to actually seem a lot like a miscarriage. So mm -hmm. they have cramping and bleeding like women have when they have miscarriages. So you prepare them for mm -hmm. those yep. kinds of We counsel them. Feelings. Everybody gets, you know, a list of instructions. They get warning signs and they, they get a 24-hour answering service um, number that they can call at any point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of an in-clinic procedure, it depends on where they are in the pregnancy and it depends on, um, you know, 
their own medical circumstances. But typically for the vast majority of patients, it's a, a five to 10 minute procedure. We give them oral pain medications. Sometimes they get IV sedation if they're in the clinic, you know, type of clinic that has that capacity. Um, but, you know, people have some cramping and some bleeding afterwards, but typically the recovery is pretty fast and um, people do quite well in the clinic. This is definitely something that doesn't need to be done in a hospital setting. It can very safely be done in a clinic for most patients. Is there anything that could go wrong? Uh, is there anything that you have to prepare for in those ways? Well, sure. I think with any medical procedure from, you know, having a colonoscopy to having an abortion to having dental work to having open heart surgery, there's a list of risks and benefits. Um, and there's all these contingencies that you plan for. But every clinic that sees patients has, you know, a big set of protocols to, you know, what happens if there's lots of bleeding? What happens if there's, you know, a patient with a problem with anesthesia? Um, all the uh, doctors are certified in cardiac life support. We all know how to resuscitate, um, and we all know how to get people to the hospital if they need it. But just to, for perspective, the risk of serious complications from abortion is about 10 to 15 times less than the risk of serious complications from birth. Wow. So it's it's a very safe procedure, um, and it's that's another reason why it's so important that we maintain access to safe abortion and not drive women to the point where they're having to do this on their own in an unsafe way. When a procedure is underway, how many people are usually in the room? So there's if it's, if it's an in clinic, right? Procedure. So there's obviously me and the patient. Um, and then if we're doing IV sedation, then there's a nurse who is administering the sedation medication and monitoring the patient the entire time. That's her only job is to watch the patient and give the sedation. And then there's usually an assistant um, who's handing me instruments and getting things that I need. And then sometimes we'll have a support person. So um, in one of our medical assistants. Like an emotional support person? Mm -hmm. And there's actually a big movement towards having abortion doulas. I don't know if you're familiar mm, with birth not, doulas. No. but I mean, I am with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this idea, like, because abortion is on this continuum of of healthcare for women, that we would support them in the same way that we would offer support to a laboring woman. And so there's a few places that offer abortion doula services. And, you know, I think people really appreciate having that like non-judgmental person to just really be there for them. They're 100% focused on their emotional needs. And you said the procedure, an in-clinic procedure typically takes five to 10 minutes? Yeah. Most of the most of the people who are having abortions are having them in the first part of the pregnancy. And those procedures typically take five to 10 minutes if they're uncomplicated. Mm -hmm. And are you in the room for much longer than that time? Not typically, so? no. No. Usually we, you know, we, we can see a lot of times if there's going to be a complication immediately from the procedure, we wait and we look. And usually within a minute or two, we know if things are going to go okay. And then we watch the patient in the recovery area for, you know, depending on how they're doing, um, 30 to 60 minutes, and then they get to go home. Do these procedures feel routine to you at this point? I would say that they are routine. You know, they're, they certainly are something that, I mean, this is what I do, uh, but they're totally normal procedure. And they're also a skill that we use to manage failed pregnancies. Mm -hmm. So this is the same procedure someone would get if they had a miscarriage, but hadn't passed the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So we treat them in exactly the same way. And that goes for, you know, abortions in the second trimester as well. The, this is the exact same set of skills we would use to manage someone who had a fetal death. When you first set out to do this work, did you anticipate that it would require this kind of empathy, this kind of uh, compassion? 
Actually, that's why I decided I wanted to do it. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love it is because this is a this is a time when so many people have turned their backs on these patients, you know, and this is a, a place where people don't expect to be treated well. They don't expect to be cared for and loved and their hands to be held and to be cried with. And, um, you know, this is a one of the things that I love the most about this job is, you know, everybody's joyful at birth. Everybody's joyful. Everybody's happy. You know, I, Abortion can be a hard decision. It's not a hard decision for everybody. Um, but I think it's so culturally loaded that to be able to be with a person when they're making that move is a huge gift. And it's really why I love this job. You've been listening to Diane Horvath-Cosper, abortion provider, OBGYN, family planning doctor in Baltimore. In a minute, she talks to us about speaking out against some of the threats that she's experienced while working in her field. We talked a little bit about um, some of the rules, especially in other states that govern consultations and waiting periods. What about other issues targeted regulation of abortion providers, for example? Is that Do those kinds of issues affect your work at all? Well, so we're all very happy about the Supreme Court decision on Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstead. So that actually has already had a kind of a trickle-down impact on some of these states that have decided not to pursue additional legislation. So trap laws are targeted regulation of abortion providers, and they were designed as a way to limit access to abortion by regulating clinics in a way that no other medical clinics are regulated and regulating physicians who provide abortions in a way that other physicians are not regulated. So, for example, there's a class of trap laws that requires abortion-providing facilities to run as an ambulatory surgical center, and an ambulatory surgical center is far more than what you need to give someone an abortion pill. So there are states where people were having to go to the ambulatory surgical center to have an abortion pill, which is ludicrous. Um, other Especially laws that's, that's mm-hmm. almost entirely outpatient procedure, right? Mm-hmm. Other trap laws required physicians who were providing abortions to have admitting privileges in hospitals within a certain radius, maybe 30 miles of where they were providing abortions. Um, the weird thing about that is there's already a system in place to get people to the hospital if they need it. So, you know, if I admitted a patient from the hospital, I wouldn't be following her in the hospital because the hospital-based OBGYNs would follow her. And that's how it is for pretty much everything, you know, all specialties. It's rare to find a doctor anymore who admits their own patients and follows in the hospital. Um, the other issue is that women now have to travel, you know, sometimes hundreds of miles to get to the clinic. So when they go back to their home 300 miles away, if they have a complication there, the admitting privileges by the clinic aren't going to make any difference. So that was another reason that these laws were found to be unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in the whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt decision. You've written about other threats, I think, that that abortion providers face for for the Washington Post. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What inspired you to, to, to start expanding your advocacy in that way? So I was Googling myself uh, a little over a year ago, like you do, and (laughs) (laughs) and I found my daughter's picture on an anti-abortion website. So this is a site that calls people who provide abortions part of the abortion cartel as if there is such a thing, um, and had photos of me from my previous employer and, you know, various other places and had a photo of me holding my daughter who was 15 months old at the time. That brought it to a level of intensity that I hadn't really felt before. Um, and that inspired me to write about what it felt like to see that and and how invasive it was. 
Does that kind of invasive threat that you face in your profession make it hard to separate the personal from the professional? I'm not sure that you can separate the personal from the professional in this line of work. And I would say that even in medicine in general, it's such a demanding profession and it's so consuming um, that I think, you know, a lot of us went into medicine, particularly women's health care and family planning, because we feel called to do it. Um, you know, and we were drawn to it, not just because the need was there, but because we felt something inside that made us want to be with women in this time. So I think for me, the personal has always been the professional, and I try very hard to separate out, you know, my daughter and my family from what I do. But I think what I want going forward is, to, you know, my daughter to understand that what I do is to help women, and um, I want her to know that the way to deal with bullying is not to step back and let things go, but to push back against the people that are doing the bullying. And so I hope she can look back someday and understand why you know, some of this happened the way it did and, and why I chose to take this path instead of, you know, go into hiding. I mean, what's it like to work constantly, though, with this sense of threat, menace? It can be terrifying. Um, it's a lot of trauma. So we were taught, we talk about this at our meetings that we have sometimes about this idea that, you know, not only do you take on the personal kind of trauma and stress of walking through protesters, wondering if your car is going to blow up when you turn the ignition key, wondering if people are going to be standing outside your home or at your child's school or daycare. You know, there's that part of it, wondering if you should get a bulletproof vest, all of those things. But then there's also the the stories that you hear from patients and the trauma that they've been through and the way that they're dealing with, you know, their lives and trying to manage, you know, the stigma around abortion. And so you have the trauma that you take on in your own life, and then you take on all of this trauma from your patients because you love them and you care for them. And those two together can be really, can drain you quite a bit. Do you have professional support systems that help you through this stuff? We do. I think that the family planning community is a pretty close-knit one, and we have a lot of meetings, um, national meetings, and we talk a lot about these issues. And I personally have a lot of good friends now that I've met through fellowship that you know, I can call on in times of need. Um, my organization is starting a program to help assist physicians during these times where you know they find somebody protesting outside their home. What do they do? How do they approach the neighbors? How do they talk to the city council? You know, How do we, they ensure safety? So it's hopefully going to give some resources that are formalized and kind of centralized to do that. But, you know, I think this idea of physician burnout is another issue. And, um, you know, having people say things like, well, get a hobby. <laughs> Great. Yeah, sure. I have tons of time for a hobby. <laughs> um, but I think there's more of a recognition now that for some people, the way to deal with burnout is to turn it back around and become an advocate. Mm. And for me, advocacy was a venue where I could take some of that, like, righteous anger and some of the pain and the trauma and flip it around and say, this is going to motivate me to make this, you know, situation better for providers and for patients. It, it sounds like advocacy, though, has been part of what you do and, and, and how you approach your work from virtually the start of, of your career. Yeah. Yeah. I think that being motivated to go into medicine by a sense of responsibility to other people kind of just sets you up for advocacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's almost hard not to be. And I know that the old paradigm is that, you know, we shouldn't mix medicine and politics. And I know that there are some older physicians who say, well, this should we should be above politics. 
health is political. You know, these personal decisions have become political, even if we don't want them to be. And certainly, all of the social determinants of health that affect the outcomes that my patients have, that affect their ability to access care, that is all political. And if we're not engaging in that, then someone else is going to make decisions for us that we may not like. So after you wrote that piece for the Washington Post, you famously sparred with MedStar Hospital, uh, where you were at the time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So, well, the current status now is that um, the civil rights complaint that we filed is still under investigation. It hasn't been decided, but we were able to talk about filing the complaint. So, what happened was uh, I published this article in the Washington Post. Um, my institution had initially been very supportive. It got circulated around the department. Everybody was congratulatory. Went on Melissa Harris Perry's show when she was on MSNBC, talked about it. And then the Colorado Springs Planned Parenthood shooting happened, and the climate changed very quickly. And there were a lot of concerns about safety, and rightfully so. But the hospital administration's uh, response to those concerns was to say, we don't want you to talk about abortion publicly in, under right. any circumstances. Mm. Um, and then we countered and said, that's not ever been shown to improve safety. We've been doing abortions here at the hospital since Roe versus Wade. Um, we provide excellent care to patients. People have you know a safe experience here, a compassionate experience here. This doesn't change it. Talking about it doesn't change it. What will actually improve safety is installing a security system and doing some other, you know, kind of evidence-based security measures that are recommended for all clinics. But they, you know, held their ground. And I was fortunate enough to work with a law firm uh, in D.C. and also the National Women's Law Center to address the hospital with a letter initially to explain why this was a bad idea, bad policy to pursue, and why it was important to speak out and to counter stigma, because that's going to be what makes the cultural change that's going to improve safety for everybody. And they kind of doubled down. And then that's when we filed the complaint with the Department of Health and Human Services. What was your reaction to being told not to do these interviews? What was your immediate response to that? I was shocked. It was like a gut punch. I mean, these were people who you know, we're happy to have our services, happy to have the ability to refer patients to us, you know, had never been anything but supportive of the care that we were providing. And for them to suddenly, you know, act like we had to be secretive about it, I thought, you know, this is worse than any protester outside my clinic. This is worse than, you know, anybody on an, a website saying that I'm part of an abortion cartel. This is somebody who's on our side, mm -hmm. but is kind of throwing us under the bus. Did this experience which is still ongoing in one way or another, uh, change the way that you go about your own day-to-day -day advocacy and your own other day-to-day -day work? I don't think it changes the way that I care for patients. Um, I think that has been, you know, a passion of mine since the beginning, and I don't, it, it hasn't affected my interaction with patients. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I think that in terms of feeling the need for advocacy and for understanding why you have to, number one, advocate for patients, and number two, advocate for yourself and your colleagues and your ability to practice evidence-based medicine, the ability to talk about what you do and to, you know, bring abortion into mainstream medicine where it belongs, that brought it into focus for me. And I realized, too, that uh, you're going to find friends in places you never knew you had them, um, but there's also people who uh, are going to have a hard time with being outspoken, even if they may 
support you on principle. It's the idea that you're, you know, coming out of the dark and saying what you do and you're proud of what you do. That can be hard for people. You've been listening to Diane Horvath-Cosper. In a minute, she talks about the ways that policy and the cultural climate affect her work, as well as the role of abortion and abortion discourse in the recent U.S. presidential election. So we're recording this just after the election of Donald Trump. Uh, Throughout his campaign, he made a lot of statements that are worrisome with regard to reproductive health, uh, with regard to the ongoing status of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, How are you feeling about the sort of status of reproductive rights generally right now? (sighs) Um, I think we were all obviously concerned. I think concerns probably a really mild word for the way that everybody felt last week. But uh, there's a lot of unknowns. You know, I think people are automatically jumping to this idea that Roe is going to be overturned. And I'm not saying that it couldn't happen. But if it were going to happen, it would require, you know, a test case to come through. It would require different justices to have to be appointed. I mean, it could be years and years and years. I'm more immediately concerned about, you know, the emboldening of state legislatures to pass more restrictions. I mean, there are states in in which abortion is, you know, nearly inaccessible. So, it, you know, they're ready, those states, to make it illegal mm-hmm. if they're permitted to. So if Roe yeah. falls, there are a whole slew of states that have legislation ready to go to make abortion completely illegal. Mm-hmm. I think the bigger, more um, pressing concern, at least on the outset, is the idea that, you know, we may lose the contraceptive mandate of the Affordable Care Act, which has been such a huge thing for my patients, mm-hmm. to be able to decide on your contraception based on your medical needs and not, oh, I can't afford that or I can't, you know, cough up the $1,000, you know, for an IUD, even though I know it's the best thing for me, um, to be able to have medical discussions with people based on the medicine and based on the patient's needs has been lovely. And I'm afraid that that's something we might lose. We've had a lot of people call in and say, should I get an IUD now? Should I get it now? Because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it after January. And I think it's terrible that we have to think about political decisions in the way that we counsel our patients about contraception. Like Maybe you're not the best candidate for an IUD, but you may not be able to get one. And should we be talking about that? And it's a terrible place to be. It shouldn't have to be what we talk about when we talk about medical care. Um, I think I'm worried about we, people losing coverage under the you know possible repeal or replacement of the ACA. I mean, 22 million Americans have gotten coverage under the ACA, and I know that there are problems with it. But these are people who needed health care coverage, and we know that their outcomes are improved, and we know that they're able to access care now that they couldn't get before. And that's, you know, cancer screenings and exams and blood pressure checks and really essential health care. What do you tell people who call concerned or worried about this stuff right now? Basically what I just told you, I we don't know. We just don't know what the policies are going to be. We don't, you know, we kind of have a sense for the types of people that are being floated for these positions and, you know, the White House. Um, we know that the vice president, future vice president's um, policies in Indiana have not been favorable towards women. Um, but I, I can't say what's going to happen. And it's hard to be reassuring when you don't know what's going to happen. I do tell people, if you're wanting contraception, you should go talk to your provider. I mean, you should always be having these discussions. So if people are worried, I say, this is a great time to talk to your provider about what might fit your life the best. 
a lot of the political rhetoric uh, during the campaign season around reproductive rights fixated on late-term term abortions. Um, very little of that language uh, seemed to have much to do with real medical circumstances, with medical realities around what late-term abortions actually entail. During one debate, Donald Trump sort of ended up fixating on late-term abortions, talking about ripping babies out of mothers. When I, what was your response to that kind of language, that kind of representation of uh, the sort of work that that doctors in your profession do? It's frustrating because the statements that were made don't reflect medical reality. As you said, I had about six calls with media the next day to talk about what does this mean and does this happen? And the statements that were made were just inflammatory and they're meant to incite this visceral gut reaction. And they do. And for me, the visceral reaction was wanting to like throw things at the TV. But um, for a lot of people, it sounds icky and it sounds difficult and awful. And I can tell you that, you know, people don't wait to have an abortion until later in pregnancy because they just didn't get around to it. Like people find themselves in that situation, you know, later in pregnancy because of something going horribly wrong with a pregnancy or because of an extenuating circumstance that delayed the procedure or because their states have so many regulations that they had to, you know, have a waiting period and then they couldn't get to the clinic because it was 500 miles away and then they had to save the money and had to get childcare. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for delay that don't have anything to do with people not being responsible or people not being able to decide. And it was just really frustrating to hear a candidate for the presidency use inflammatory language that have, has no relationship to reality. And even the moderator asking about partial birth abortion, partial birth abortion is not a thing. It has never been a thing. It's a made-up term to make people, you know, feel icky. Um, and it doesn't represent any kind of medical procedure. We've never been able to define exactly what it is. And it certainly isn't something that doctors do. What can people, ordinary citizens, civilians do to support the work that you do right now? Oh, there's so many things. Um, I think making sure that your elected officials know that you're listening and that you're watching. Uh, phone calls are uh, to your phone calls to the legislative staffers of your elected officials are probably the best way to get to them. Um, give money if you have it. So the the organizations that are most in need of funds and where the funds go directly to helping patients are things like abortion access funds. So here in D.C., we have an abortion access fund that we actually utilize quite a bit because of the Hyde Amendment and its restrictions on uh, Medicaid funding for abortion. So, you know, the difference between somebody getting their medical care and somebody not being able to get their medical care could be $50 or $25. Mm -hmm. And those are highly impactful in the lives of my patients. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, stay engaged and even if you don't think this is your issue, it's, it's kind of your issue. You know, no one ever thinks they're going to be face to face in front of me in the clinic until they're there. And we've taken care of people who used to protest the clinic. And we've taken care of the daughters of people who used to protest the clinic. And it's a, you know, unplanned pregnancy is a pretty unifying life experience. It happens to all kinds of people. Um, and I think, you know, promoting policies that are evidence based, electing officials who will uphold scientific 
medical policies and not, you know, these um, laws that are restricting access for no reason. Yeah. What do you do to decompress, to deal with the sort of everyday trauma of all of the stuff you have to deal with in this, this line of work? I sing in my car on the way home. Um, my daughter is a huge outlet for me. I mean, I think, you know, three-year-olds don't care if you've had a bad day. I mean, they just want to hang out and color and play. And I think it helps put it all into perspective. And it also helps me remember why I'm doing this. And I, the reason, I mean, one of the big reasons that I do what I do, especially the advocacy bit, is I don't want my daughter to have to be fighting this fight when she's my age. I want this to be something we get to decide on as a society, and I want her rights to be protected, and I want her to be able to make decisions that are best for her. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today and for talking with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Brogan. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. You can listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. A special thanks in this episode to Sarah Wides and Caroline O'Shea, who helped us frame it and think about it. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers.